Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, thank you, Kimberly. Thanks, Colton. All right, so uh, today we're starting our series in Titus. Uh, We should be here for about six weeks or so. Uh, And let me give you a little background uh, as we begin this. Uh, So as we studied the book of Acts, you might have noticed a a bit of a pattern that Paul would would go to a place, he'd preach the the gospel, people would believe, and they would start churches. And we read in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul felt a measure of anxiety uh, about these churches. So he would often go back to visit them, and sometimes uh, he would leave somebody with this church there, like a guy like Titus. Uh, soon after the events of Acts 28, we were there just a couple weeks ago. Soon after that, when Paul was in prison in Rome, uh, he went back to this island that actually on his way to Rome, he, he sailed by Crete uh, and he left Titus there. Uh, he left Titus there with his church that was starting up. Um, but there were some things that he wanted to make sure Titus knew and did. And that's why we have this letter with us today to study. Uh, And this letter isn't just good information for the church in Crete that Titus needs to to tell them. This is also good information for Redeemer Church in Starkville. So we need to be instructed by this letter. So we would do well to take a thoughtful look at it. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to begin our study of the of Paul's letter to Titus. And in this greeting, this is one of the the, the better greetings, or the, the the more uh, more rich with meaning greetings that uh, Paul has in all of his letters. And so anyway, uh, two things that I want to to pull out of this greeting and to consider a bit further is when he writes to them about their faith and knowledge. That's number one. And number two, he writes about their eternal hope. So number one is going to be on faith and knowledge. Number two, I want to talk about eternal hope. So first, Paul wrote them about their faith and knowledge. Look at verse one. We read this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So first, I want us to notice who Paul has on his heart And mine. He is thinking about and writing for the sake of a certain group of people. And that group of people is what he calls here God's elect. And and so we see this idea of God's elect often in the scriptures, especially with with Paul. Uh, In Romans 9, Paul's writing about uh, God choosing Jacob and not Esau. And he wrote this in uh, Romans 9 11. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born, Jacob and Esau had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad. Jacob and Esau, neither, neither one of them had done anything good or bad. And it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so, so this is just this idea of God's purpose of election. It happens before they're born, before anybody does good or, good or bad, for the purpose of God's purpose of election standing. And so 
this is in some ways a way of Paul banging the table saying that we're not saved by works. We're saved by God's calling, God's electing. So in Titus, we read about Paul writing and he says, for the sake of God's elect. And in Romans 9-11, we read about God's purpose of election. We just spoke about election in the catechism we read. <clears throat> and, and, and how that speaks to not being saved by works. Because again, Jacob was chosen before they did anything good or bad. Paul writes something similar in, uh, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Or you could say according to election. And then in Ephesians 1.11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we can see that Paul is operating under the assumption that God's elect, his chosen people, are scattered about. And so when he sailed by Crete on the way to go to prison in Rome, he was probably thinking, I bet God's people are there. I bet God has elect chosen people on this island. We should come back around when we're done in Rome. And they did. And he left Titus and there were elect there. And so that's why there's a church there. And now sometimes people might think this doctrine of election or predestination might uh, serve to, un- to, to not motivate. It demotivates people because God's just going to do what it's going to do. But here we see it's like a motivating factor. Like we need to go back to this island because God's elect are probably there. Turns out he was right. His, the elect were there. And so it motivated Paul to go to Crete and it motivated him to write this letter to Titus. And so this is what we see how Paul operates. This idea of election motivates him to do this. And it goes along with what Jesus said in John 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And here it is. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And so Paul understood that God has other sheep out there that have not yet been brought in to the fold. And so one of the main motivating factors for Paul in going to Crete and doing missions and starting this church was that he assumed that God's elect were there. And this is how we should function to a degree as a church. This is a church for God's elect. For God's elect people, his chosen people to be built up, to not be isolated, but to be together in community, to be growing in faith and love and in good works. And it's also a church for God's elect who have not yet been brought in, who are sheep who are not yet in the fold. And so since God is sending, sending us out to find his elect, his sheep, his people, we need to have a good place to bring them. And that's where the church family comes in. And so Paul wants Titus, he's writing Titus because he wants Titus to create this sweet community where God's elect can thrive, where they can grow in faith and knowledge. And when they're growing in faith and knowledge, he doesn't just want them to get information into their heads, but he wants them to grow in knowledge in such a way that their faith or confidence in God grows, becomes stronger, and and that their knowledge would grow into godliness, to actually doing stuff. As Paul said, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So you all probably know that it is more than possible for a person to have a whole lot of knowledge about the Bible, but lack godliness. 
Bible information is not a problem for them. Like they, they got plenty of information. The problem is that, that that knowledge is not growing their faith and confidence in God, and it's a knowledge that doesn't lead towards godliness. Several years ago, when I was in campus ministry, uh, I was talking to an, an older gentleman, and we were having one of those conversations about kids these days, right? As I'm getting older, I'm starting to say the same stuff. But anyway, we're talking about kids these days, in particular, College kids who grew up in the church, now they're in college, they're out getting drunk. And then he says, oops, and then he said, I'm not getting mad, I just accidentally hit it. Uh, and then he says, you know, I don't get it. The Bible's real clear about it. And I, I can't remember, I think I was just kind of, you know, smiled and, and nodded, but I was just thinking, like, I don't think the problem's information. I, I, I don't think... Like if I were to go out to some college bar and find some, some kid who grew up in the church and he was drunk, and I was like, excuse me, sir, can I show you? You ought not be doing this. It's clear as day right here. I just don't think that's the problem. I don't think information is the issue. The issue is that there's been information that's been given that didn't lead to godliness. So we need to have this category that is very possible and probably more than likely with our sinful nature that we can grow in knowledge. We can know a lot about the Bible, but it doesn't invade our life in any way that has any kind of impact. And, and that's, look, we all do this to some degree. I mean, none of us are completely living up to everything we know. Like by God's grace, it's going to be more and more. But we got to have this category is that we know a lot of good things to do, especially if you're a Bible person, you're in church a lot, you study the Bible on your own. I mean, we, we, we know quite a bit. The problem is in the, is in the doing, right? So like, like, for example, the Bible speaks directly to marriage. But there's a big difference in knowing what the Bible says about marriage and, and, and whether or not I'm going to nourish and cherish my wife or understand and love my wife. And th- th- there's, a, there's a big difference between knowing that and then Missy, my wife, actually feeling that, right? Like most husbands know they should love their wives. Most wives know they should respect their husbands. And so usually it's not an issue of like, never knew that. The issue is actually making it happen to, to, to having knowledge that accords with godliness, that works itself out. So, so I'll put it this way. I was listening to a podcast not long ago, and it was a, a guy talking about his first day of seminary. Uh, and during his first day of seminary, he was actually a newlywed. He'd been married for just a couple weeks. And it was one of those classes, I guess it was small enough to where everybody could kind of stand up and, and give an introduction. And so this guy's kind of a funny guy. So he, he stood up and he said, yeah, hey, I've been married uh, for a couple weeks and uh, still don't get why candles are so important. You know, everybody kind of laughs. You can just see this newlywed guy and they're unpacking, getting into their new apartment and they're putting candles everywhere. He's like, why do we have 20 candles in this house? You know, and so he's just kind of laughing about that. Uh, then he sits down, uh, but then the, the, the seminary professor says, uh, hey man, so you don't know why candles are important? And at that point, he's kind of shocked because it was just a throwaway joke. And he says, no. And the seminary professor says, candles are important because they're important to your wife. That's knowledge that accords with godliness. And so here's a seminary professor. He's probably got a lot of theology, right? He probably has a lot. He knows the Bible really well. But you know what's sweet? is I, I bet that professor treats his wife really well. And man, those people are the best. So anyway, not just knowing to love your wife, but to actually 
love your wife well. So it's more than possible for us to have a lot of knowledge, but somehow have a disconnect between that knowledge and it working its way out in godliness. And all of us can relate to to, to some degree to this, you know? Like for some of us, maybe when we're at our worst, we're not even trying. It's just not even on our radar. And sometimes we're just distracted, life's busy, and it's hard to slow down enough to do what we know to do. Uh, And it's it's quite a challenge to be thoughtful about what it means to abide in Christ like today, this hour, the the next 30 minutes. So anyway, that's a challenge for everybody. But I should also say this. There is a way of being so out of the game on this that one might need to have concern for their soul. Uh, in 1 John 1, 3, we read, uh, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we shouldn't just assume because people claim to be Christian or because that they attend church that they actually do know God and are in fact saved. And, and what Paul wants for God's elect people in Crete is for them to have the kind of faith and knowledge that accords with godliness, that leads to godliness, that makes them better men and women, better employees, better employers. And, and let me say this, godly people, they're just the best. They're, they're, you might know, like when I, when I hear that, you might be like, I don't totally agree. Well, there, there might be like religious people or uptight people or just super intense people that you don't really enjoy. Well, they might not be godly because we just saw like you can get a lot of knowledge and you can even be weird about the knowledge you have. But people who are truly godly, who understand the gospel, so they're super humble, like far be it from them to judge anyone. But since God's been so gracious to them, far be it from them to just ignore what God has said. <laughs> godly people are also, they're just the best. You like them. You, you would want to be like them. And I know a lot of them. There, a lot of them are in this room right now. And it's sweet. And what makes for a really sweet community is not a, a collection of people who know a lot of stuff, right? I mean, that can be quite annoying, right? But, 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 what's, but, but also, so, so not just a collection of people who know a lot of stuff. That can be annoying. But also a, a bunch of people who understand the gospel so well that they don't get it. Do you know what I mean? Like they're so gracious that anything goes and they don't stand for anything. Everything's just up in the air. But if you get a bunch of godly people together who are growing in knowledge and faith that accords to godliness and they come together to share their life together, that's something truly, truly sweet. So anyway, Paul is writing Titus because he wants them to have faith and knowledge that is growing and become strong and that is according to godliness. Now, second... Paul wrote to them about their eternal hope. So Paul's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, we see, for their knowledge of the truth that accords to godliness. And all of this is with an eye towards eternity. Look at verse 2 and 3 in Titus 1. Uh, Verse 2 we read, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul has been entrusted with preaching. And embedded in his preaching is the message of eternal life. And at the proper time, Jesus appeared. In God's timing, Jesus showed up. And then again, at the proper time, Paul showed up. Or Jesus showed up to Paul. And Paul was entrusted with the message of Jesus, the good news of salvation for sinners. And and Paul says that this hope is based on what God has promised and that God 
cannot lie. So, with the idea of Paul's been entrusted with this message and that God has given him and God cannot lie, I just want to consider for just a moment about what does... what is the apostles teaching, the message that Jesus gave the apostles? What is it the apostles have shown us about salvation? Because God does not lie. Whatever they, the apostles have said, we can trust it comes from Jesus, comes from God, and he cannot lie. So we can, we can hang on to this. This can be our, be our anchor. And so I'm just going to go over just some high points of the gospel. If you're not clear on what the gospel is or where you stand with God, if you're going to heaven or hell, then you need to understand what I'm about to say. So I'm just going to take a few excerpts here or there. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul writes, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So therefore, we believe that we are saved by grace. That means our salvation is not something we can work hard enough to get. It's undeserved, unearned. And then we're saved by faith, which means trusting in what Jesus has done for us, not trusting in what we have done for him. And what is it that Jesus has done for us? One of my favorite verses that sums this up well is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Here's what that means. For believers, our sin is transferred to Jesus. And his righteousness, his perfect record is transferred to us. That's how we're saved. And it's outrageous. (laughs) It's unfair. The innocent man was punished and the guilty were rewarded. That's the gospel. It's insane. And it's all true because God never lies. This is good news for sinners. So when we talk about having faith, we're talking about faith in that. We're not talking about faith in in God's up there. We're not talking about faith in some cheesy Bible verse that somebody tags along somewhere. We're talking about something real that Jesus did, that God accomplished, and God the Son that counts for us. And it's faith in that. That's the substance of it, what Jesus accomplished in his life. And our confidence in that should be based on God's word on what the apostles taught about salvation because Jesus appeared at the proper time and at the proper time entrusted the message to the apostles. And so we need to cling tightly to what the apostles have taught us. And we have that in the New Testament, in the scriptures. So in order to have hope for eternal life, we need to understand what the New Testament teaches, which I just gave a brief overview of that. And so anyway, we have to understand and we have to attach our hope to what God has said. So our hope must be attached to the scriptures. It, it, it can't even be just a line I say that's cute or that, or that makes sense logically. It needs to be anchored to the word of God, to the scriptures. Now, I'm, I'm going to share like a random thought I had uh, a, a while back. So uh, one day last spring, uh, I was actually out playing golf by myself and I had a random thought come to mind. I can't remember what, what triggered this thought. But anyway, so, so I'm out there, I'm walking around, and I, and I wonder, you know, I, I, wish, I wish that God let us know who made it. And here's what I mean by that. Like, I wish that God let us know who made it to heaven and who didn't. You know, like usually for like our family or if me and Missy are traveling, let's say I'm driving to Jackson, I get to Jackson, text Missy, hey, I made it, just so you know I'm here. In the world of Life 360, some of y'all might have that. That's not as necessary anymore. There's like, just, I just know they're there. But anyway, the idea is like, I made it there safe. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have, you know, that have passed on that I'm, I'm quite sure uh, are, are with the Lord. And it would be nice to know that they're there. 
there, there's some people like, I'm not real sure about. And I it, kind of want to know if, if they made it or not. And, and I kind of started to think, you know, why? I wish God would have set it up that way. Like, and I don't know what he would have done. I mean, he can think of something he's got. Some kind of confirmation that we can know that they made it. But as I continue to think about it, I realize that, of course, he didn't set it up that way. There is no confirmation system that God gives us that people truly are saved and in heaven after they die, at least on this side of eternity. But I assume that it's not that way. It must be good and right that it's not set up that way. And as I chewed on it some more, it started to make sense why God wouldn't do it that way. And here's kind of where my mind went. So, for example, after his death, we learn that the famous apologist, uh, Ravi Zacharias, was not quite the man we thought he was. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. If not, don't worry about it. It was a man. He, would, uh, he was a de- defender of the faith, uh, appeared to be a very godly man. Uh, after his death, uh, I'll spare you the details, it seemed that he was living somewhat of a double life. Not somewhat. He was living a double life. Um, and in any way, he never... Uh, he was accused of some things, and he never uh, acknowledged it or certainly didn't repent of it. And um, in any way, but it shows that he was living in deliberate, unrepentant sin. And now, we're all, we're all sinners, and we're all going to sin the, the rest of our life. There's not going to be a time where we no longer sin. But if someone is living in deliberate sin, meaning intentional sin, and unrepentant with no plans to stop, then based on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, then they should have concern for their soul. It says this, Hebrews 10, 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So based on that, I would not be surprised if Ravi Zacharias didn't make it to heaven. And, and just to be clear, it's not because his sins were bad. I mean, that's why Jesus died on the cross for sins. But it's because it was, there was deliberate and unrepentant sin. And, and I, I should add that I don't know if Ravi Zacharias made it or not. But based on that scripture and others like it, there, there's certainly some concern for his soul. But let's say that information never came out about his double life. And let's say you, you never knew that. Uh, and then this confirmation system did exist. And so this man, who from everything you can tell, is a great defender of the, of the faith and articulate, articulate, articulates the gospel as good as you and probably better than you. And you find out he didn't make it. What might that do to your understanding of the gospel? And let's consider another side. Christopher Hitchens. Uh, a somewhat famous atheist and critic of Christianity would often be in debates uh, and he would oppose uh, the, the, the message of, of Christianity. He died several years ago. Well, let's say we received confirmation that he did make it, that he was in heaven, that he was with the Lord. And, and, and what if in his last hour or his last minutes of life, like the thief on the cross, he came to saving faith. I mean, that dude heard the gospel a lot because he was always debating Christians. So he knew the gospel, and, and, and what if the closing seconds of his life, he reached out to Christ? Well, Christ would surely save him. But if that happened, so not knowing what was going on uh, in Ravi Zacharias' secret life, and not knowing what happened in Christopher Hitchens' final moments, you might begin to think, you know, 
Ravi Zacharias didn't make it. Christopher Hitchens did. It really doesn't matter what you think. Or, or what if we had that confirmation? And then what if we got the stats on denominations? You know, this denomination, they got in like a 90% success rate. This one over here is like 50%. You know? So anyway, I, I'm, it, here's, here's the point. It would take our focus off what God has said in his word, and it would put our focus on the lives of those who made it or didn't make it. And besides studying God's word, we start studying people. And people are a mess and a contradiction and all jacked up. And a person can present themselves as the most solid Christian ever, and they're not. And a person can be a staunch unbeliever and be like the thief on the cross in the last moment, reach out in, for, in a humble plea for mercy and find it. And so we would not do well to study people. That confirmation system would not be a gift. It would be a curse. So it is truly better to have God's word than to have a confirmation system of who made it to heaven or not. I really believe that. It was a good day of golf for me. I was making my mind, I felt encouraged. Um, It really is better. Better than you having an account of who made it and who didn't is to have God's word. Like this is the best thing for us and we got it. So we would do well to pay attention to it. And what Paul has said about God is that at the proper time, he manifested his word and he did it through the preaching of the apostles. And in his kindness, all that got recorded, their preaching and their letters, they got recorded. And God's promises have been revealed and God cannot lie. People are messy. We would probably be surprised by some who make it to heaven and we would probably be surprised by some who don't. And Jesus taught, this isn't a surprise, Jesus taught in Matthew 13 that there would be weeds growing among the wheat. And he basically said, let them grow together. Don't sort them out yet. It's going to get sorted out at harvest. And and what that's an an analogy of is that there's going to be non-Christians living among Christians. And that's why we have membership. I mean, there's a sense where we're like, we want to know that you uh, have faith in Jesus and that, and that you want to follow Jesus because we, we, we want to we guard against this. We want as many people in Redeemer. When you become a Redeemer, there's a sense we're saying over you, like, we think you're legit. You, you articulate the, the gospel. This is the true gospel. Uh, and you have sh- all signs show that you are, in fact, a child of God. And so be encouraged and affirmed in that. And so, but there will still be uh, weed among the wheat. There will be non-believers in the church. And so that, and you won't be able to tell apart, but it will be sorted out on Judgment Day as Jesus describes in Matthew 13. But it would no doubt be an unreliable guide to focus on people's messed up lives as pointing the way to eternal life. It's got to be the scriptures. Our faith needs to be focused on what the apostles preached. The message that Jesus entrusted to them. That's for us. And again, that message is this. Jesus made a way for sinners to enter eternal life. He is the way. He has done everything necessary for us. And that's outrageously good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for giving us something solid to stand on, a real reason for hope, not just, not just a, a, 
a faith that is reaching out for, for nothing. But we stand on your word, Jesus. You commissioned these apostles to preach. Um, and Jesus, you confirmed your own ministry in the resurrection. So we are, are certainly on solid ground. Thank you for that. Help us to grow in faith and in knowledge of the truth in a way that makes us more godly. Sweeter people, stronger people, tender, firm, all the things that Jesus was. Uh, would you help us to have hope in our eternal life? This life is a mist that appears for a little while, uh, but eternity will go on and on forever. Would you help us to be mindful of that? And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.